there has been this movement against removing Confederate monuments because they claim that's erasing history. But now you've got some of these same people trying to ban actual books about history. If you read a, a just general description of, hey, kids were oppressed in school or mm -hmm. kids feel uncomfortable in school, that's not as effective as literature that actually paints the experience of people. I wasn't in high school so long ago, and when I was, I don't think I ever checked a book out of the library. Right. Like, yeah. all my research yeah. <laughs> was, all my research was online. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Corey, what do we have today? Well, we got some interesting stories to talk about today. Coming up, book banning is on the rise in the U.S. Who is to blame for this new trend? Then, a 26-year-old sentenced to juvenile detention. We explore the controversy surrounding that case. Then, a sizable portion of Americans are leaving places like California and moving to places like Texas and Florida. Are we undergoing a new great migration? And Elon Musk, trolled by a 19-year-old, has the billionaire finally met his match. But first things first, Joe Rogan is responding to controversy after a campaign of musicians and podcasters removed their content from Spotify in protest of Rogan, who they claim spreads vaccine misinformation on his podcast. Neil Young has removed his music from the, the platform of Spotify and uh, Joni Mitchell and uh, apparently some other people want to as well. Um, I'm very sorry that they feel that way. I, I, I most certainly don't want that. One of the things that Spotify wants to do that I agree with is that at the beginning of these controversial podcasts, like specifically ones about COVID, is to put a disclaimer and say that you should speak with your physician and that these people and the opinions that they express are contrary to the opinions of uh, the consensus of experts, which I think is very important. Sure, have that on there. I'm very happy with that. Um, also, I think uh, if there's anything that I've done that I could do better is uh, have more experts with differing opinions right after I have the controversial ones. Uh, I would most certainly be open to doing that. You know, I do all the scheduling myself and uh, I don't always get it right. This, these podcasts are very strange because they're just conversations. And oftentimes I have no idea what I'm going to talk about until I sit down and talk to people. And that's why some of my ideas are not that prepared or fleshed out because I'm literally having them in real time. So what do we think of Rogan's response here? And what do we think of these changes that Spotify is making? Apparently Spotify has said that they're going to put uh, a content advisory on uh, any podcast dealing with COVID-19. So is there is this an overreaction to Rogan or do people like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell have a point here? Well, I think this is this is what happens when the sort of alternative media marries, you know, these corporate media. And it's it's going to be weird, I think, when when we bring people together who are as loose and as Joe Rogan described, like his show is kind of a conversation. He started with a small audience and now has, you know, a juggernaut, maybe the most important show we've ever had and I think he's catching up with his own fame in many ways it's hard to rage against a machine when you are the machine and so now he's uh, has to behave in a way like a media company because he's part of a corporation because he has a huge audience that regardless of his intent takes seriously everything that goes on there and I think this is like when I look at Spotify, they had this sort of platitudinal sort of boilerplate, like we're going to put an advisory, like like any, that's going to matter at all. We all click past these advisories. Yeah. So when I look at Spotify, they really said a whole lot of nothing. 
And then you look at Rogan. I think this is like why people like Rogan. Like he's super genuine. He admitted to mistakes. He explained what he's going to do differently. And as we covered on the last pod, I've already seen a difference from him just as somebody who doesn't listen to him a ton. Mm -hmm. He has this way of fact checking where he kind of pulls up a study or he'll ask a question to ask for clarification. And I saw him even more aggressive in the last episode. I kind of like this response, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I do as well. And I think that, you know, the media has given a kind of caricature of Joe Rogan to a lot of people. I imagine that a lot of people that are critics of him haven't actually listened to him. And it's pretty easy to forget that the guy is a Bernie supporter, that he supports Medicare for all. Yes, he has these more controversial opinions, but I think censoring him doesn't really provide any solutions for society. And one thing actually that was kind of funny is I'm an Apple Music user and I went on and it had Neil lives here and Joni lives here. And I just do not want a world where the, now our like whatever media we stream on whatever service, like, oh, we have the conservative one. And now it's just like yeah. the F Joe Biden song by what, well, who was it? Kid Rock that did that? Like well, that's all that's left on Spotify now. So the Apple <laughs> stuff reminds me of Ricky Gervais at the Golden Globes when he said, if ISIS had a streaming service, you'd go run to call your agent. Well, you say you're woke, but the companies you work for, I mean, unbelievable. Apple, Amazon, Disney. If ISIS started a streaming service, you'd call your agent, wouldn't you? And it's <laughs> as if, like, Spotify for having Rogan is worse than Apple, who, you know, we've covered this before. You know, Apple's human rights uh, mm -hmm. story is mm -hmm. hor horrendous. Like, mm -hmm. Spotify isn't, to my knowledge, manufacturing electronics in an authoritarian country with very, very questionable labor practices yeah. where mm -hmm. people are committing suicide at their plants. So I would, I think if I'm stacking up like who's worse here, I think Apple is probably coming out worse here, mm -hmm. you know? Definitely, yeah. definitely. You know, one thing we do here at The Lost Debate is we are trying to cut through polarization. We're trying to cut through a hyper-partisanship and we're definitely trying to defeat misinformation. So if Joe Rogan was out here spreading uh, blatant misinformation, we will be the first to say so. I don't think what Joe Rogan has done on his show rises to that. I don't think, I know the Robert Malone interview is one that's really in question and things like that, but I think when you look at the whole of what he's done, what misinformation specifically are, or what misinformation I should say specifically is the left talking about here? Right, I, I think about everybody who does a show is going to have people on or they're going to say things that are wrong. We've yeah. said things that are wrong before. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm proud of the fact that we have a really good team of fact checkers who like, you know, for people who want to know what goes beyond, like if I say something wrong, we take it out of the show if we catch it before it goes on yeah. air. And then mm -hmm. if it does make it on air, we either issue a correction mm -hmm. underneath it or completely take it out of the audio. And we use the end of the show sometimes to address some of these things. Mm -hmm. And I think for Rogan, I think part of what he's doing and needs to do is kind of build more systems around this. And I think he admits that, which is there are things like, and you, you flagged Robert Malone, for example. Like Robert Malone to me said some things that were demonstrably false in that yeah. interview. Uh, and if Rogan did what he said, which is if he, ha I wish he didn't have him on, but I'm not yeah. Rogan. This is his show. If he had an expert on after that who clarified it or challenged it, or even if Rogan did basically did what he did with Peterson last time and challenged him a little bit more yeah. while he was yeah, doing that, that would be fine. But in the end, every media company gets something wrong. Like this morning, I was listening to Kara Swisher kind of castigating Rogan in many ways. By the way, wouldn't take her podcast off Spotify, but said she canceled her premium membership, which, woo, like okay. fist, fist in the air. Right. Like, you know, settle down, Kara. But you go back and look at Kara Swisher's gotten things wrong. Like the ki the Covington kids, for example, she ridiculed those kids and got that story completely yeah. wrong. And to her credit, she apologized. But like 
every media company is going to get something wrong. And I think part of what's happening here is these alternative media companies are becoming the dominant media. And what I implore them to do is just build systems to make sure that your systems are meeting your audience size. And it seems from what Rogan is saying is that he's adapting. And I think another point that Rogan brings up that's really important to mention is science is an evolving field. And the whole point of science is to bring up hypotheses and bat them down when they're wrong or accept some new truth. And when we have an evolving crisis like a pandemic and we're saying, oh, the lab leak theory is racist or it's wrong or it's this or it's that, we need to be very careful with the label of misinformation with something as nuanced and developing as scientific truth and give Rogan credit for a lot of things that he did bring to light earlier, like having Brett Weinstein on early on in the in the pandemic saying, I do think this came from a lab. And it turns out like that used to be untouchable material. And now we're all kind of saying it. So yeah. it's important to exhibit some humility and realizing that sometimes our lines of what's true and false do change. Well, I do think it's worth pointing out, like Brett Weinstein to me, like has a lot of things uh, that he says that I, I have real issues with. But at the same time, he was talking about the lab leak issue earlier on than everybody else. And so how do you weigh those things? I think in the end, that's his prerogative as a host. This is a, a matter of capitalism, right? So when Joni Mitchell and Neil Young pull their content from Spotify, that's also their prerogative. And I think totally. like I have no problem with that. Uh, I think there's something lurking underneath here, which is that Spotify has a bad relationship with artists because yeah. a lot of people think they ripped them off. A lot yeah. of people think they ripped Joe Rogan off. Um, there's this post that I, if you really want an interesting read on the business of podcasts Mm -hmm. there was this kid who wrote a post this guy andrew wilkerson and he wrote it on the marker and medium basically going through the economics of how rogan got totally ripped off by spotify so in part that's the leverage that's going on here but it's also worth noting and i and i would be remiss if i didn't mention that and sometimes i feel like you have to choose in these situations between these people who cannot wait to criticize rogan because uh they hate what he represents, yeah. like that he has these friends with Alex Jones or these other people, Ben Shapiro. And then there are these other people who in many ways depend upon Rogan, the Matt Taibis of the world uh, and other you know, new alternative media companies that go on Rogan's show. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they spend all his time castigating MSNBC or whoever doesn't give them airtime. Uh, and then they feel frozen because they don't want to criticize Rogan because he's their new master. And then to me, those people need to be criticized too, because in the end, Rogan is a powerful guy and I like him. uh, And that doesn't mean that we're going to spare him critiques. We've done a ton of things where we've respectfully debunked certain things that he said, or at least challenged them. And this is what I think we try to do at Lost Debate is like, we try to serve no one here. And I think I would employ the Taibis of the world, the Greenwalds of the world. And I don't know if he's been on Rogan, but there's this cabal of people who think like they treat MSNBC like it's some kind of juggernaut and pretend like Joe Rogan doesn't have what, 10 plus million listeners and growing. Like that means that he needs to be a part of the conversation. And part of the conversation is respectful critiques and nobody's off limits to that. Absolutely. There is this tendency on the left to pretty much shut down anyone who's saying something that you even slightly disagree with rather than just engaging those people in a conversation and debating them. And if you think they're wrong, just prove them wrong. Right. But don't try to silence them because then that just turns what they're saying into forbidden fruit. That just makes people want to listen to it even more. And Joe Rogan has admitted that he doesn't have strong knowledge about these issues that he's just sparking conversation to me. Joe Rogan is not the problem here. The problem is like you said, these, this fan base that he's cultivated that think everything he says is law just because it's coming from this alternative source. I mean, we have to remember this is a guy who got his start, you know, hosting Fear Factor. And now we've got people saying Joe Rogan for president, even though when he clearly says, I don't know shit about any of this stuff. 
And yet you got people Honestly, saying- that makes him more qualified for president than a lot of people <laughs> are saying he doesn't know shit. Yeah, at least he admits it, <laughs> yeah. right? At least he admits it. At least he's not pretending to be some expert. But I, like I said, I have no problem with Rogan. He's had people like Sean Carroll, who's a, a well-respected physicist. He's had a lot of, uh, you know, he had a great conversation with Sanjay Gupta. You know, he's tried to engage a lot of intelligent people and articulate people in these conversations. Uh, it's just the fan base that has turned him into this otherworldly thing simply because it's coming from the alternative side. And that's the thing that I think is really problematic. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of people who engage with Rogan, maybe the way I do, which is I'll turn, like if he's got on uh, David Sinclair, an expert on aging or something, I'll listen to that, mm -hmm. or Peter Atia or Dave Chappelle or something. And if he has like on a public health person, I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm going to let this one go. Or the four-hour Jordan Peterson, I may listen to it for this show, but I'm not sure I would have tuned into that. Mm -hmm. And so I think they're almost like, because he's got such a large audience, there are different people engaging with it in different ways. He's kind of like a you know, a supersized Charlie Rose, you know, like yes. you'd have like Charlie yeah, Rose having like these long interviews yeah. uh, and had nowhere near, I think the the viewership that, uh, that Rogan has. Um, but he's, he's in many ways an American institution. And I think we have to engage with him as such. And, you know, this is where we are in 2022. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, speaking of shutting down ideas, there have been more attempts to ban books in America this school year than at any time in recent history. The American Library Association, the organization that tracks this, said they recorded an unprecedented 330 book challenges last fall alone, and they expect double the amount of challenges this year compared to 2019. One example is a school board in Tennessee banning the book Mouse, a Pulitzer Prize winning graphic novel about the Holocaust. Another school board in Missouri just banned Toni Morrison's novel, The Bluest Eye. A mayor in Mississippi is withholding funding from his city library over books that depict the LGBTQ community. And the Oklahoma State Senate is considering a bill that would ban all books pertaining to sex from public schools. Let's see how their teen pregnancy rates react to that. Considering the state of culture wars in our country, should we really be surprised that this is playing out in our libraries? Uh, Ravi, where do we even start with all this? Well, I have a story about this. When I was a school principal, I assigned a book called City of Thieves, which is my favorite novel. Mm -hmm. uh, it's by David Benioff, the guy who uh, co-wrote Game of Thrones, the mm -hmm. TV show. Mm -hmm. And I love this book. Uh, and I assigned it to the seventh graders. And it has some mature themes. Like there's some jokes about sex. There's like a little bit of sex scenes. There's some violence. But seventh graders, you know, the way I assumed it was like, if, if the first time a seventh grader is hearing about sex is in that book, then there's something else weird has happened in our society. And so I signed this book, the kids loved it, but then uh, this, a school board member got their hands on it. And this is a school board who'd been trying to shut us down for a long time. And mm -hmm. she forwarded an email to the school district and I'll read you part of it. She basically said, attach this city of thieves and this book, yada, yada. And she like screenshots parts of the book talking about sex and things like that. And mm -hmm. she goes, quote, this school needs to be shut down. Wow. Now, at the time, this was 2015, we had the highest performing public school in the city. We're outperforming the city, the state, all other charter schools mm -hmm. as a network. And I was assigning a rigorous book that was way above grade level uh, for these kids. So instead of asking, hey, how are you getting your kids to read better than everybody else? She was trying to shut us down for ideological reasons. Now, what made this interesting is that she was coming at us from the left. It's part of the reason why we even have this show is I went through the six-year experience after coming off the Obama campaign where I... I experienced a ton of intolerance from the left. And I wrote a piece, and I'll just quote this, and this is this is how I feel about all book bannings, generally speaking, and why I like charters, because we generally have more 
freedom than a lot of people to tell bureaucrats to go fuck themselves. But this is what I said. I said, thankfully, these politicians, activists, and bureaucrats don't have the right to dictate what schools or families choose, what books our teachers teach, or what facts our kids learn. These folks should stop pushing their worldview onto our educators, scholars, and families. That's generally my opinion about this. I think that kids can handle mature subjects. I think if the first time they're hearing about sexes in literature, that's frankly great. And I think that kids should read things that are above their vocabulary and that's the thing we should be celebrating. And so I think banning books is bad. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, you know, this is yet another example of the stray sand effect at work because now mouse is number one on Amazon or it hit number one at some point in the past few days. So whenever you try to keep things away, it it becomes more tantalizing, more interesting. And even when I go to the Strand bookstore up on Broadway, like they have a banned book section. Like that just, it gives it a whole new essence of forbidden material. And I think it's, it always ends up backfiring in the end. And I think that ideology should be kept out but that it, that's not to say that parents don't have some right over what their kids are exposed to. And mm-hmm. in that New York Times recent expose about this, they mentioned that a lot of schools have a mechanism in place at libraries where if a parent doesn't approve of a book, their, their child can't check it out. Yep. And I think, you know, if more schools can implement things like that and bring parents into the conversation and engage in that with them over what feels appropriate for their child at their age, I think that's great. But I think these blank, blanket bans of nobody's kid can get near any of this because I don't agree with it is a mistake. Well, that's a simply slope because what if a parent disagrees with a book simply because they don't like the themes of that book and it doesn't have anything to do with, oh, this is, you know, there's nudity in here or oh, there's violence in here. What if, oh, I don't like this because, you know, something like Beloved from Toni Morrison or has new been kid, banned. Like the example, yeah. Exactly. Like I think that you're going down a slippery slope when you, because the reason we send kids to school is so they can get a different type of education that they, that their parents wouldn't be able to give them. Mm-hmm. And so I think there is a danger um, in putting too much power in the hands of parents to say what their kids can and can't learn at school because some parents suck and some parents <laughs> want to, um, you know, only teach a certain worldview to their kids that may not even be accurate. Well, this is why I like school choice because it's like in the end what can happen is if a parent and there were some parents who then were stirred up by this controversy around my my book who had an issue mm-hmm. with it and what, there was a really interesting case where there was a, a custody situation going on between two parents one parent loved the fact that the kid was reading this book and the other didn't and in the articles literally in the tennessee and the national scene the parents are kind of <laughs> like different <laughs> perspectives are being shared wow. and but i'm with you on that there was this case of this um book called uh new kid which is a newberry medal winning book mm-hmm. and uh, a parent tried to get it pulled from the shelves and temporarily got it pulled from the shelves and it was a book about a, a, a black kid who goes to a private school predominantly white school and all about their experience mm-hmm. and the parent wrote the books don't come out and say we want white children to feel like oppressors but that is absolutely what they will do basically saying like it doesn't even say that you're like hey you white person feel guilty for what you are but this goes back to how it feels right yeah, and i'm like this is exactly what kids should be reading they yeah. should be reading about somebody's perspective because there's only so much you can get from nonfiction. if you read a a, a just general description of hey kids were oppressed in school or mm-hmm. kids feel uncomfortable in school that's that's not as effective as a, uh, as literature that actually paints the experience of people. And there's like a great quote from uh, Viet Tan Nguyen, who, you know, the acclaimed author wrote in the New York Times recently, and he was writing about Close Quarters, which mm-hmm. is a book uh, written about Vietnam. And he, he wrote this, as a Vietnamese American teenager, it was horrifying for me to realize that this was how some Americans saw Vietnamese people and therefore me. I returned the book to the library, hating both it and Mr. Heinemann. Here's what I didn't do. I didn't complain to the library or petition the librarians to take the book off the shelves, nor did my parents. It didn't come across my mind that we should ban close quarters or any of the many 
other books, movies, or TV shows in which racist and sexist depictions of Vietnamese and other Asian people appear. And then he later wrote, saying mm-hmm. when he wrote his book, uh, The Sympathizer, he went back and reread Close Quarters, and then he wrote, and I realized that I'd misconstrued the author's intentions. He wasn't endorsing what he depicted. He wanted to show that war brutalized soldiers and civilians. So basically saying he had misunderstood it, right? Which is why we shouldn't jump to conclusions. Toni Morrison has written similarly about Huck Finn, saying yeah. like even though it mm-hmm. uses racist language, mm-hmm. she defended, even going back to the 80s when there was a controversy about this, she defended the book saying, do not pull this off the shelves. Uh, and in many ways, these types of pieces of literature help us understand situations better. And if we pull them and we pull that experience or even the engagement with those texts, then we're, we're losing critical context about the way the world either was or is. Absolutely. What I think is so ironic about the state of Tennessee or a school board in Tennessee banning a book about the Holocaust is this is exactly what Nazi Germany did in the 1930s. I mean, they burned books from authors ranging from Karl Marx to Albert Einstein. They burned the works of many Jewish authors and anyone who opposed Nazism. Also, I will also point out another bit of irony here is that in Tennessee and Alabama, places like in the Deep South, there has been this movement against removing Confederate monuments because they claim that's erasing history. But now you've got some of these same people trying to ban actual books about history because it's teaching it from an uncomfortable perspective. In Alabama, they actually passed a law protecting Confederate monuments, but they have not passed any laws protecting historical books. So I just think that this is just insane to me that some of the same people who are trying to protect statues are not trying to protect books that actually tell the real story of history. Yeah, I'm with you. And you got me thinking, uh, you know, you're back and forth before about the tough part here sometimes is there's one freaking school in a district, mm-hmm. right? And like, even though I'm a proponent of school choice, sometimes you're just in a small town and like you can only have one school. Yeah. So what happens if a parent wants a book taught and another parent doesn't want yeah. it taught? Yeah, sure. This is where democracy comes in and it gets tricky, right? Like, cause public schools are a reflection of the will of the people. Mm-hmm. And you know, what happens if 50 plus percent of people want to start censoring things. I think this is largely what we're seeing mm-hmm. in a lot of places and that gets really tricky. I think all we can do is argue against it. It's like not illegal a lot of yeah. these times. It's like you just have to be like, look, like ki- the kids are better when they engage with more material. Obviously there's a, there's within reason, right? But like by and large, like having those books in the library means like if a kid wants to write a paper about, you know, the the Holocaust and they want to actually quote Mein Kampf because it helps people understand what Hitler was doing, mm-hmm. like not even giving them access to that, like to me it's seems it's not right, you know, and, and maybe there's some t- twisted situation where a kid seeks it out because they're like, what, do, what am I missing? Like, exactly. why do people yeah. not want me to see this, you know? I would also say I think this is a lot of misdirected outrage because I wasn't in high school so long ago. And when I was, I don't think I ever checked a book out of the library. Like all my research (laughs) was all my research was online because like almost every book is scanned and it's easier to find the right word or quote that you're looking for. And I I mean, I think it's like a generational difference because these kids, if they want to find salacious material, like that's what the Internet is for. It's like arguing over what's in blockbuster video shelves or something. I don't know what kids are like, oh, I'm going to go read about sex in the library right now. in in their defense though i think like i'm with you there's like a blockbuster video element to this but it's kind of a reflection of how they view the ideas that are allowed expressed in the classroom in the Mm -hmm. first place right so it's like it's almost like a symbol it's a symbolic representation of you know and i I have people coming to me all the time because of another podcast i do where there's a lot of educators who listen in and send Mm -hmm. me i want to teach about x but i feel like i'm going to get in trouble i want to teach about reconstruction and all that and it's real and a lot of these people are in the south and they feel like they're going to lose their jobs and often my advice to them is you will 
you'll lose your job if you teach about that thing. And I wish it weren't true. Mm. And so that's what I wish. That's what I'm worried about. Like, I hear you though. Like yeah. it's who's, I didn't even spend time in the library and I'm a hundred years old. So it's like, <laughs> I think the, the debate is about the ideas more than the, the books themselves. Absolutely. Oh yeah, definitely. And I, to clarify what I mean by that is I think the parents have a little bit of misdirected outrage, not everybody being yeah. upset about it because censorship yeah. is censorship. But yeah. I also don't think that parents are necessarily in the right to think that this, that books in the library are the only exposure that their yeah. kids have to these ideas. Yeah. That's kind of get, reminds me of the City of Thieves situation. I'll bring it home, which is this is totally unrelated to the topic, but just so people don't feel like I'm leaving out critical context. So when I signed the book, I anticipated that some elements of how sexually explicit the book were and some of the curse words and stuff would be an issue. So I actually went in and edited the book myself uh, for the kids. And in some cases, I just I brought the vocabulary down on a certain level. So if, if you sense a contradiction between some things I said earlier about the level of vocabulary and exposing kids to mature themes, there's definitely a contradiction here. So don't, feel free to point it out anyway. Uh, but so I edited the text mm-hmm. and all that. So when the school board came at me, I then responded. Uh, and by the way, this is all playing out in the front pages of newspapers in Tennessee, by the way. There's a lot of fun reading if anybody wants to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> and so I was like, hey, like I actually edited this book ahead of time to anticipate your changes. And this shows how disingenuous they were. They went from being outraged over the fact that I was exposing kids to mature themes to the fact that I was taking those themes out and I was violating copyright. <laughs> and so I was getting letters from these like different associations of oh, wow. copyright. I, I learned a new word. I think it's like bowdollarizer. I can't even say the word. Bowdollarizer. I can't even say the word. But there's like a word that means editing some text or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like any educator knows that you do that all the time. You yeah, do yeah. it in special education situations. You, mm-hmm. you do it yeah. to, to decrease the levels and all that. And it played out all across the pages of the Nashville schools. And this was like, you know, five years ago, seven years ago. And nothing really wound up happening other than I kept fighting with the same school board member and she was unsuccessful uh, in shutting us down. Hope you're doing all right, Amy Froke. <laughs> well, that was interesting. So we learned a little bit about copyright infringement. And, um, and Ricky, you had a really great point there. Kids, just get the PDF if you really want to uh, read it. It's, you don't have to go to the library. Now to Ricky on our next story about a controversial sentencing in L.A. that's not getting a lot of mainstream media. Ricky, what exactly is happening with this case? So this goes back to 2014 when a 17 year old two weeks away from at the time his 18th birthday um, molested a 10 year old girl in a restaurant bathroom, um, grabbed her by the throat, locked her in the stall, put his hands down her pants until someone else came in. Um, And now Between that time of being a 17-year-old, almost 18-year-old, and now a 26-year-old, this individual has a rap sheet of battery, drug possession, probation violations, assault with a deadly weapon, an adult history of being a dangerous criminal. And in 2021, their DNA was linked to the original crime in 2014. Mm -hmm. And so now we have a 26-year-old who is being sentenced. There's two controversial issues here Mm -hmm. that are separate but kind of interwoven in this specific case. The first is that a 26-year-old is being now sentenced to two years in a juvenile facility because the local DA has a policy that anyone under the age of 18, whenever they committed their crime, should be in a juvenile detention facility, no matter what the age is at the time that they're arrested for that for that incident. Mm-hmm. Then the second issue is that According to Fox News, who spoke to sources in the DA's office, this individual transitioned from male to female while in custody between November and now and is going to be housed in a juvenile facility for girls, even though this individual had been a child molester against young girls. And so 
I think we have a combination of the issue of how do we make sure that people who are transitioning, I don't know what's in this individual's head. I'm I'm for as many transgender rights and, and affording people the benefit of the doubt as much as we can. But but how do you prevent someone from transitioning in bad faith in order to have access to women? How do we protect the rights of the transgender individual and the rights of the women that get caught up in these situations? And also, how can you protect juveniles from being charged as an adults for crimes that they shouldn't be without allowing an adult with a rap sheet and a clearly dangerous criminal history to end up in a juvenile facility as an adult, as a 26-year-old. And so we have almost the worst case scenario combination of these two progressive policies. And so it's not getting a lot of media attention on the left, and I think it's worth bringing up. Yeah, and we we struggle with whether to cover this at all. And I think part of the reason is anytime you, you talk about uh, here's a trans individual and a crime, uh, there's this sense that by pointing those things out, you're implying that that trans people are more likely to commit this crime or not, which is obviously not the case. And mm -hmm. we're people who support trans rights. And Absolutely. in doing that, um, we, we almost didn't do this story because we didn't want to feed into some misperception about either who we are. But the reason why we decided to cover it is because anytime we see a situation where there's like a Fox News covering something and then the left isn't, and then there's some real substance going on here that's important to discuss, that means we need to lean in as scary as it can be. And honestly, it's a kind of a scary thing to talk about. But the reason why we're covering this is because it is it does seem like a result that that we should have avoided. Yeah. You know, an adult in a facility with people that are vulnerable uh, and, you know, the directly related to the crime that was committed. And, you know, my sense from this is part of being for trans rights is, is being able to point out the nuance, right? Mm -hmm. Just like for any other people that you support, um, there's a reason why you don't see a ton of trans rights activists uh, who are pushing really hard for this outcome that we saw is because uh, trans rights activists too have nuance. And I think, you know, my sense is uh, a lot of them and, and a lot of people who are looking at this need to be asking, how can we avoid this situation? Uh, it seems like a terrible outcome and one that we need to avoid. And lest it also hurt the trans community too, because I think like people will then take these these sets of facts and say this is what they're for, and this is the this is actually the logical outcome of people who advocate for trans rights, and I don't think that's true, and that's why we wanted to at least bring it to the table. And I also think it's worth mentioning that this is just because the local DA has these two policies in place and isn't budging on it, and yet the judge is against it, the deputy district attorney is against it, the county supervisor, the county sheriff. It seems like almost everyone is against it, but one person is ideologically married to these two policies that came together in the absolute worst case scenario way. And if you're somebody who, like I personally have looked at the statistics that trans women are nine times more likely to be sexually assaulted in prison. Um, and I also think that women's prisons are there for a reason to protect women who are super vulnerable in situations like this. And so you wanna protect the rights of as many people as possible and calling out the worst case scenarios when it's an ideological sort of outcome like this appears to be from the DA's perspective, in my opinion, is really important in order to make sure that one bad apple doesn't potentially spoil the entire situation for people who genuinely need to be protected as transgender individuals that could be at huge risk in a prison that doesn't align with their presentation or their social affiliation. Well, I think this DA has a problem that I think plagues a lot of these sort of pro progressive reformer DAs, which is they're not really good at weighing different risks, mm -hmm. right? So they think about, all right, we, we're, there's the risk of the person accused uh, of a crime and or the person in the case of, you know, LA, San Francisco, New York, who perpetrates a crime, or in a lot of cases, we just de-emphasize crimes. We talked about this. Uh, not enough on the victims, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not enough on the victims in the, like the, if I were the victim of this person, I would be 
uh, incensed about this, that they could be in a position to repeat the crime within mm-hmm. custody. I would be incensed uh, if I were uh, a parent of a person at that juvenile facility and those people's uh, rights need to be respected. And this is also an outgrowth of the fact that our prison system is so freaking shitty that you know, you're stuck between a situation of putting an adult in a juvenile facility because that's somehow more humane. And I think the premise there is that the adult facilities are so unsafe and crazy that we can't put somebody there. And there, as much as I don't like this DA, I'm sympathetic to that argument because it is true that LA prisons, uh, you know, California prisons are insane. My brother was a federal prison guard in a federal um, penitentiary in California, right outside of LA. And that was horrible. And that was fe- that was the federal penitentiary. So I think this is this has so many layers to it. There's the age situation. There's the, the lack of any sense of like an organized prison system. And then you have the intersection of the trans question here. And I think- it is such a dicey, terrible reflection of where we are as a society on these issues. And so, yeah, it's a depressing situation. Definitely. And I think even taking gender out of the situation, the issue that somebody who was two weeks away from their 18th birthday at the time that they perpetrated a crime in 2014 and now is clearly an adult. I have so much sympathy for young people that do something dumb and don't think of the the consequences and maybe did something reckless or silly, but assaulting another human being is something that even a small child knows is wrong. And I think that we need to afford some nuance in these situations to not say, oh, anybody who committed a crime below the age of 18 is automatically going to be in a juvenile prison if they're 40. I mean, I don't even know if there is an upper limit to this. And I think that we need to take care to provide mercy to as many people as possible and not have these exceptions that are just glaring worst case scenario. And you never want to leave something like this untouched so the other side can pick it up and say, hey, this hasn't even been talked about at all. And this means that all of these policies are completely wrong because they're is a lot of truth in these policies. We want to make sure that they're utilized in the correct iterations to protect the correct people who actually need it and it don't end up being abused or extrapolated into the worst case. Yeah, one thing that really bothers me about this, and this gets to some of your reporting you did, Corey, about the Alabama prison system, is that there's just this premise that when people go to prison, they're unsafe. And it's and it's mm-hmm. a premise born of the reality of our prison system is that people make you know prison rape jokes and popular culture, and it's just assumed that when people go to prison, that they are unsafe and they're potentially like in this case, like they're they're this this is a, we're talking about a person who both is on potentially at risk and is a risk to other people, mm-hmm. and it's disgraceful that our country spends as much as we do on prisons and we can't keep people safe from each other in our yeah. prison mm-hmm. system. That is a huge 100%. indictment to where we are right now. It shouldn't just be assumed that that people are are able to prey on each other the way that they do in prison systems. Like if we're gonna take on this responsibility of incarcerating people as long as we do, we need to do a much better job of creating safe facilities. So I just wanna point out two things just for clarification. In California, it is illegal for someone the age of this individual to be in a juvenile facility. Um, so that does contradict what this DA is doing by uh, trying to uh, push this individual who's 26 into juvenile facilities. So more than likely, this person would be uh, by that standard isolated from other individuals, probably in some type of um, solitary confinement or something like that. I also do want to point out that in the L.A. Times article that broke this story, they did speak that this individual had some developmental issues, possibly some mental uh, developmental issues that may also play a role here. So I just wanted to point both of those out. But it is a really terrible situation because this is one of those stories that you know uh 
I don't as, as of this recording, I don't think we've seen anything from CNN, MSNBC, uh, any of the so-called mainstream uh, left-leaning media sources haven't been covering this. And when you're silent about something like this, it makes it sound like you're complicit with what this DA is doing and the effects of something like this. And you're not really understanding all the implications this has for the safety of, of not just, you know, women and juveniles, but everybody when it comes to uh, being in prison. So I, I am glad that we covered this story and did it in a nuanced way. Let's so um, let's move on. Heart pivot here. We've been hearing <laughs> a lot about a Zoom migration. Americans relocating from big cities to red states. Specifically, California saw its population decline for the first time in history last year. Now, pundits are saying it's a reckoning for blue states politics, you know, high taxes, regulation, COVID restrictions. Meanwhile, red states like Texas and Florida are seeing big jumps in population growth. Idaho actually tops the list. But the data is more complicated than that. Is this because of a rise in remote work? Is it due to the cost of living or just a natural correction that happens when cities get more expensive? What is our overall read on here? I know San Francisco was the city that sparked this uh, this conversation because a lot of people are apparently leaving San Francisco. Yeah, I think we can hold two ideas simultaneously. One is actually that there's actually less of a national migration than people are describing or at least assuming nationally. So in 2021, more than 27 million people or 8.4% of U.S. residents reported having moved in the past year. Uh, and that compares to 9.3% of residents uh, from 2019 to 2020. So uh, actually it was going down and that figure was 17% who moved um, three decades ago. So less people are moving, strangely. I, that That is counterintuitive to me in thinking about the pandemic, but more people are leaving California each year. Mm -hmm. uh, I think this was only the second year that California had a net population loss and the first year that, that San Francisco and LA had a net population loss. Mm -hmm. And so the question is why? Right. I don't want to claim to be a wizard here and have the answer, but here are some potential theories. It could be a combination of these or none of these, but th these are some theories out there. And um, Peter Yared, uh, who's a startup founder, like wrote about some of these, but you have business friendly uh, cities. Like, you know, a lot of these cities have lower regulation, they have fewer closures, they have better tax rates for sure. Yeah. As somebody who lived in Nashville and now lives in New York, I can attest to that. <laughs> um, they have more affordable housing. We, t we covered this from Connor Doherty. Like, strangely, you have a Miami Republican, I believe it's a Republican mayor and a Republican governor has way more development of, of big, you know, apartment buildings, et cetera, than places like New York and San Francisco, which purport to be liberal. Um, you have more diversity of thought. I know like a lot of our left-leaning people are going to hate this, but one thing I liked about living in Nashville is that I had a lot of liberal neighbors. It's like a democratic city, but I could, you know, I had a ton of people who were Republicans that were my friends yeah. and conservatives, and mm -hmm. we would talk about things, we'd debate things, and people would try to shut down my schools. My Republican friends would come and have my back about it, et cetera, and then I'd give them a hard time about Donald Trump. I liked that. Yeah. Some people, I do think, move for a place like this. And then here's the dirty secret. I'm not saying I believe this fully, but I have a friend who used to say that the best place to live in America is a democratic city in a Republican state. I don't necessarily believe that. Interesting. But it's something to think about. Um, and that's what Nashville is. That's what Austin is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Miami is, I think, a Republican mayor and Still. governed in many ways like a yeah. Democratic city. It's like, you know, kind of eclectic and diverse and all that kind of stuff. So I think people are moving for real reasons. And I think liberals should take note of this. As anybody who lives in New York or San Francisco knows, you pay a premium for the kind of people you're around. Like you pay to be around innovative, exciting people at the top of their fields. And I'm a New York nationalist. I love it. I love the fact that we're number we're number two in almost any industry. But at the same time, as people mm -hmm. keep moving to Austin, Nashville, Miami, who are some of the dynamic people, the, 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 mm -hmm. the cost of doing business here, that tax you pay to live in New York mm -hmm. starts mm -hmm. to look less and less attractive to a lot of people. 
sure. Yeah, and I think a lot of people move here for the opportunity. And now with remote work in a lot of industries, you can get that same opportunity almost everywhere. And I mean, in the same vein, living in New York, you make a lot of sacrifices. Like I live in this tiny little studio apartment and especially during lockdown, I was lucky I could go and stay with my mom. But if I was here, you know, you you sacrifice and have a smaller smaller housing situation, a a worse quality of home life maybe, but then that's because you wanna be out in a booming city and engaging with it. And your your home is almost secondary. It's just the place that you sleep because you live in the city and that's the whole point of being here. And so I think a lot of people had the experience in the pandemic of actually being confined to that space and seeing the city kind of wither for a while and that's disheartening. So, I mean, I don't blame a lot of people for saying I could be doing my same job somewhere else and Mm -hmm. be happier and be paying less taxes. I don't know, it doesn't seem like a bad move to me. Yeah, well, I saw that San Francisco was one of the top cities that was losing population. I lived in San Francisco for about two and a half years, about roughly 10 years ago, 2012, 2013, around that time. And let me tell you something here. Um, <laughs> first of all, I had a friend who had a studio apartment in a pretty nice neighborhood, Lower Napier, which is a pretty nice neighborhood near downtown San Francisco. He had a studio apartment, tiny little, probably like maybe 800 square feet. He had a little kitchenette, tiny little bathroom, 1850 a month. And that was back in 2011, 2012, 1850 a month. I am paying less than that now for a one bedroom in Queens. I mean, it's insane how much it costs to live out there. Not to mention San Francisco is not that great of a city no, to sucks. live in. Absolutely I mean, yeah. it's cold all the time. Like they don't have seasons. The summer is cold. There's human feces pretty much <laughs> everywhere you walk. Now, you know, I walk in New York. You have to deal with, you know, dog poop every once in a while. But dog poop is very different from human feces. Um, I have an and, unconventional take on the dog poop. I think that if we're going to let dogs crap all over the sidewalks, we should let humans do it no, too. No, 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 yeah. no, no, because yeah. it's, it's, it's more, it's more, it's, it's much more harder to, it's harder to navigate through that, you know, and not to mention, I just remember being in San Francisco, like if you weren't working in tech. Yes. It's like, a single industry town. It's a single industry town. Like there was nothing really there for you. So that's I can, why I hate when people compare New York and San Francisco. Oh no. Cause totally how dare do. you? Like, <laughs> like, first of all, New York, you could predict the weather on any given yeah. day. You get fall, spring, summer and winter in San Francisco. It's oh, a, yeah. it, it was a cool town 20 years ago. Now it's a single industry tech mm-hmm. bro town. Yeah. It's super unaffordable affordable mm-hmm. uh their schools are closed at all you, you can go back to our regressives episodes listeners and if you haven't and, and viewers uh if you haven't uh heard it yet a couple weeks ago we covered the school closures mm-hmm. in san francisco we had the school board chair mm-hmm. uh on the record and and i want you to ask yourself after listening to that would you want your kids in the hands of that leadership and then we also interviewed connor doherty from the new york times he yeah. talked about they won't build any new housing no i totally understand why people leave there now New York, on the other hand, like, and I think one of the reasons why New York fared better is it still has many selling points, and it's such a much bigger city. So, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You, it can it could stomach more. It, nothing's affordable here, but it you it is it is more affordable in some places in New York just by the sheer size. Um, and but here's here's some data that just is mind blowing. Nerd Wallet did a cost of living calculator comparing San Francisco to a couple places. Miami Dade County, forty three percent lower cost of living. Wow. Nashville, fifty three percent lower. Austin. 49% lower. If you made $80,000 a year uh, in San Francisco, you would only need to make about $46,000 in Miami, wow. $38,000 in Nashville, and $41,000 in Austin in order to uh, have the same cost of living. And so if you have the ability to leave and Zoom somewhere, why not? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially if your city sucks like San Francisco. Well, sorry, all listeners. of our San Francisco viewers and, and listeners out there, <laughs> I just want to be clear, we don't hate your city. We just hate the way <laughs> Not as much is. as Boston. It's probably yeah. so many people thinking, what are these idiots talking about? They live in New York. So yeah. <laughs> to yeah. be fair. I'll go, I'll have that debate I mean, any I'm, day. I'm a yeah. New Yorker yeah. at yeah. heart, but I, I can, from the outside, see that some of the criticism is valid. <laughs> we put up with a lot here. Yeah. BART, the, the the transit system they have out there, is 
slightly more reliable than the MTA. I, I will have to say that. But other than that, San Francisco does kind of suck. But um, <laughs> let's move on now to our final story. Elon Musk, as brilliant as he is, has long been called a troll. But is the Twitter lord finally getting bested at his own game by a 19-year-old? A UCF student is bargaining with Elon Musk. He caught the billionaire's attention by tracking his private jet. The billionaire slid into the teen's DMs with an offer. A college student named Jack Sweeney has been negotiating with Elon Musk over a Twitter account called at Elon Jet. This account has been tracking his private jet since June 2020. Musk understandably wants that to stop. So he offered Sweeney $5,000 to shut that Twitter feed down. But now Sweeney wants 50 grand and a Tesla Model 3 for his trouble. There was talk of some Bitcoin being exchanged, maybe even an internship at Tesla. But Musk has recently shut down negotiations with Sweeney. So what happens now? Should we be rooting for this kid or weary of what looks like to be just straight up Twitter blackmail. This is a crazy story. Yeah, I have a theory about this. If you've ever seen Usual Suspects, and spoiler alert for those who haven't, it's a 30-year-old movie you or whatever. Seen so you should have seen it by now. It's a great movie. But there's this character named Kaiser Soze. The whole movie's about, oh, who's Kaiser Soze? And it turns out that this this, this character who's like super unassuming turns out to be Kaiser Soze. I have, I have a theory. I think that Elon Musk and Jack Sweeney are the same person. Really? Technically savvy, Jack Sweeney. Mm-hmm. Erratic tweets that both advance and undermine his cause. Transactions in Bitcoin. This is the same person. I think Elon <laughs> Musk invented Jack Sweeney as arguing with himself, which I think is like a totally like Kanye style meta move that he's having right now. Um, and I much respect because I think it's really interesting. Absolutely. I think this kid's also a fan of his, so it does kind of check out, (laughs) which is funny. But this is yet another example of how trying to censor something always backfires. And I know that Elon tried to go through a private back channel and this kid decided to go public. Mm -hmm. And also his negotiation skills are really bad. Like Elon offered, he's making $20 a month off of this. Elon offered him 5,000 and the kid goes, oh yeah, that's great. But can it be 50? Like it's just, it's not great. But in terms of the censorship, um, which I'm not accusing Elon of trying to do publicly, like he Mm -hmm. was just looking out for his safety. I don't blame him. But a week ago, it had 82,000 followers. Now it's 263,000. Wow. So as soon as this stuff, as soon as you try to quiet anything, it always becomes material that people flock to. Yeah. Well, I don't necessarily know if Elon Musk and his kid are the same person. That would be (laughs) uh, kind of weird. But this kid could be the new Elon Musk. I mean, he was able to use some pretty impressive skills to be able to track these planes. And he's been doing it with other people, not just Elon Musk. He's doing it with Bill Gates, a couple of other people. So I wrote the checklist off. Let's see if this kid is the new Elon Musk. This kid is bold. He's innovative. He's unique. He's gifted. He uses his powers for profit. He's a troll. He's mastered Twitter. And regardless of how we feel about what he's doing, we're talking about him. Your list is better than mine. Yeah. I think, I, yeah. I think this kid might be, list. well, yeah. thank you. I think this kid might be the new Elon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. And I think, you know, I'm surprised Elon didn't take him up on the offer to have the internship. Maybe because that would reveal maybe my theory. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but it seems like he, like, it's, I'm not the first or the hundredth person to make this argument, but it seems like Elon, this is exactly the kind of person he'd want around him. He's yeah. like, he's mm-hmm. just like his future protege. Maybe it'll well, happen. It kind of reminds me of like the FBI, like, or I don't know if they still do this, but I, I believe it was the FBI would like create sites and have people try to hack into them. And if you could hack into them, then they would hire you because they yeah. want someone, you know, who can do that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. maybe Elon Musk would, could, could use a, a, a kid like this to, you know, track Elizabeth Warren's private jet or something. I don't yeah. know. It's why like as a, as a former school principal, it's often the kids who get in the most trouble 
that uh, go on to be the most successful. It's because they're pushing boundaries and they don't have the sort of sense of shame that a lot of people have. <laughs> Interestingly, those are the same people sometimes who go to jail. So yeah. like you could go in either direction. It's like jail or Yale. Jail uh, or Yale. And so that's this kid shows you is like, it's the more complicit type of personality, the rule follower who, you know, maybe has a good future as a McKinsey consultant, but it's these kids who are like super weird and like don't have any sense of boundaries that have, I think, the widest range of possibility in this world. Well, one thing that will prove whether or not Jack Sweeney is a real person, if we can get him on the show. Yes. So Jack yeah, Sweeney, yeah. Come, on. come on to the show. Tell us how you did this. Talk to us about your negotiations with Elon, and maybe we can get you that Tesla after all. <laughs> well, great conversations today. We thank you all for listening and watching. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube and listen to us wherever you get your podcasts from. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>